BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is sponsored by Hum Nutrition, a leading vitamin brand on the forefront of wellness. Hum is best known for Flatter Me, a digestive enzyme that debloats fast and went viral on TikTok. Rooted in science and backed by clinical research, Hum offers clean and targeted formulas that help you reach your wellness goals. From gut and skin health to vaginal and hormonal balance, Hum has specific solutions that work for you. Hum Nutrition's bestseller, Flatter Me, is the ultimate debloating hack. It's so easy for you. All you have to do is take one small capsule before a meal, and it helps you enjoy all of your favorite foods without the bloating aftermath. Flatter Me is clinically tested to de-bloat fast and works after only one use. Head to humnutrition.com, that is H-U-M-nutrition.com, and get 40% off your first order with code GARAGE. Reach your wellness goals and head to humnutrition.com, that is H-U-M-nutrition.com, today as this offer expires soon. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who very astutely turned down the pay me in cryptocurrency option. Here is the captain. A.K.A. Mr. Wet Pants. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are still sipping on this delicious brew from Foam Brewers called Pavement. Pavement is a double India pale ale smoothed out with some juicy tropical fruit, which includes passion fruit, mango, and citrus. Garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. Thank you to everybody for contributing to this week's beer fund and helping us out with this week's beer run. If you want to help us out with next week's shows, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the pint glass or the donate button. And while you're there, members of our mailing list already know this. If you follow us on Twitter, you already know this. But True Crime Garage, we're at it again. That's right. Live and in person this April, April 29th, which is a Saturday, we will be once again, at BrewDog in the greater Columbus area, it is the captain's B-Day bash. That stands for birthday. Birthday bash. Tickets are now on sale at truecrimegarage.com. Yeah, make sure you join us. We're going to have a meet and greet. We're going to do some Q&A. We're going to talk some crime. And plus, we're just going to hang out 
and have some delicious brews with all of you and hugs and kisses all around. Your beers for the beer tasting that we are hosting are included in the ticket price. So go and check out tickets now. Get your tickets before they're all gone because they will disappear before you know it. TrueCrimeGarage.com. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run, and that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. But we knew that it wasn't. We knew that Rosie wouldn't just climb out of the window at that late at night and just leave and go throw herself in the river because we know she wouldn't do that. Rosie Tapia's sister and family never believed her drowning was accidental. Her mother discovered Rosie missing just before 6 a.m. Sunday, the window of her bedroom open, screen removed. Now autopsy results reveal Rosie was probably sexually assaulted before drowning in the Jordan River Canal, where her body was discovered by a jogger. It's just so sad because somebody could be so sick to take a baby from her room, from her security and do such a rotten thing to her. What are we supposed to do? Keep our kids locked up, our windows locked, our doors locked, put bars on our window to keep our kids from being stolen and, and tossed in a river? They're following this up uh, with additional uh, statements and interviews of the victims and also witnesses because uh, it's be it's becoming a more a larger investigation than maybe it was initially. One of the avenues under investigation reports that a man was seen hanging around the apartment playground, a man who carried Rosie home Saturday after she fell off the slide. She said that guy was sitting on one of the benches just watching the kids. And why would a guy just watch kids if he didn't handle kids? He's probably seeing who he's going to hit next. None of the kids are safe, you know, until they find this person who did this. Families who live here are now living in fear after the abduction, sexual assault, and murder of six-year-old Rosie Tapia. Relatives and neighbors are now taking no chances with their own children. I let my kids run around here and I want this guy caught because I'm scared that it might happen to my son or my daughter or my other son. Kara Hansen's daughter was nearly abducted about a year ago. So what kind of precautions are you taking with your children? Um, just staying outside with them while they play, um, making them come in when I go in, just not letting them play outside by themselves. Around 8 p.m., authorities brought in a team of bloodhounds to try and track down where Rosie went into the canal. Police suspect the child knew her abductor, and right now there are a few suspects, but very little to go on. A neighbor who lived two floors above Rosie's window reported hearing a scream yesterday morning, and other neighbors say a strange man had brought the girl home from this playground Saturday night after she fell. I don't believe it's somebody we know. Um, hopefully it's not, because it'd be even more devastated to know that. 
Rosie's death comes one week after this woman's daughter was abducted and raped from the same apartment complex. This woman says the property managers told her to keep it quiet. Oh, now, right now, the, our main concern is our security. If we're going to have to live here, I think there should be better, either, either better security or more security. Security is now everyone's concern, but for Rosie's family, the priority is getting the killer in custody. For somebody to do this, he had to have a sick mind, very sick mind to do something like this to a six-year-old girl. What began as a tragic drowning is now being called a murder. Here's what we know. Little Rosie was discovered missing just before 6 a.m. yesterday. Police say her bedroom window was open and the screen removed. A jogger discovered her body in the Jordan River Canal. And an autopsy performed today indicates Rosie had been sexually assaulted before drowning in the river. We're still investigating the still unsolved homicide of six-year-old Rosie Tapia. It's amazing to me, Captain, that all of these years later, this case is still unsolved. But as we said yesterday, there is some meat on the bone. So let's go through some of the DNA evidence, the suspects that are involved here, as well as our offender profile. Now, a quick recap of the case. We have our victim's mother who checks in on Rosie at 2.30 a.m. Now, she is sleeping in her bedroom with her four-year-old sister and four-year-old brother. By 5.45 a.m., Rosie was missing from her bedroom. This is discovered by her mother. The bedroom window was open, the screen was removed, and the girl is missing. The police were immediately notified and a search was initiated. By approximately 10 a.m., the victim's body was located by a man who was out walking his dog. The body was floating in the surplus canal about a block from the apartment where she was taken. The autopsy revealed that Rosie had been sexually assaulted. This is an open and active case, and the Salt Lake City Police Department is seeking information in this case. One thing that I found a little strange here, Captain, when reviewing the information back from 1995 was that Salt Lake City was experiencing something that the rest of the country really was not. So the serious crime rate, and when we say serious crimes, we're referring to things like murder, rape, burglaries, violent crimes, things like that. The serious crime rate fell nationally four consecutive years in a row from 1991 to 1995. In fact, dropping 2% nationwide from 1994 to 1995. But the opposite of that was Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City at the time ranked third amongst large cities in the U.S. for an increase in serious crime. In fact, the crime rate in Salt Lake City itself climbed a whopping 16.4%. So while nationwide we are experiencing dropping rates, Salt Lake City at this time was was experiencing something completely different, rising rates and rising significantly. Probably due to high sodium diets. Well, let's dive into the timeline of the investigation and that will 
lead us to some suspects along the way. Days after the funeral service for little Rosie Tapia, we have a Barbie doll that was found left at her gravesite. This Barbie doll was collected by her mother. Her mother collected several items that were left at the gravesite, and it's not uncommon for things to be left in memorial to victims or even to loved ones that pass from natural causes. In Rosie's case, you had your typical things like pictures, grievance cards, candles, stuffed animals, things of that nature that were left at the gravesite. But one item in particular that was of particular interest to Rosie's mother was this Barbie doll that was left at the gravesite. Now, a bunch of these items that were left at Rosie's gravesite, the mother, the family collected them and maintained these items for many years to come. The Barbie doll that was collected by her mother will actually become part of this investigation decades later. That's going to lead us to 2002, Captain. In November of 2002, an unknown person left a rock on Rosie Tapia's grave with a note written on it. Now, we do not know what that note says, but we what we do know is the Salt Lake City Police Department has publicly announced this event, as well as that they are seeking the person that left the rock, that left the note, that wrote the note, they want to speak to this individual. Now, that was 20 years ago that that rock was left on the gravesite. We don't have any report indicating that that person ever came forward or that they were ever able to locate the individual or if they were able, if they were able to locate or identify the individual if they spoke to them. So we don't know what has come of that piece of information. Uh But what's interesting to me is years later, decades later, they decide this Barbie doll that was left at the gravesite is important to the investigation. And back in 2002, they knew that this rock with the note left on it was important to the investigation and made that clear to the public at some point seeking this individual. So is there a connection between the Barbie doll and the rock? It's difficult to sit here and say. We don't know the information that was left in that note. But what it does do, because initially when I hear about this Barbie doll and it being a big deal and then we're going to have it tested and all that stuff, I go, well, it could be a nothing burger because people leave stuff all the time. And is it possible that somebody brings their daughter to leave some flowers at the gravesite and the daughter has a toy with them and decides, well, I'm going to leave this toy for her. But what we do have with this rock and this note is that obviously somebody's trying to communicate with their family or law enforcement through that gravesite. So it puts a little bit more uh, value or more, it puts it as a higher probability that maybe somebody was trying to make a statement by leaving some kind of doll at the gravesite. I kind of leapfrog something on accident here in our timeline, so I want to make sure that I include this now before we get too far along. Good job, dumbass. But there was a lead that they were trying to follow up on early on in this investigation, and I want to make sure that we include this, Captain, because we don't know if this information could be paired with something else in the timeline or a suspect in this timeline. 
So the lead that they were working on early in the investigation was what they were referring to as an elusive truck. This was a truck they were trying to find. They were trying to identify this truck, trying to find the owner of this vehicle. This elusive truck, we don't get much in the way of a description other than something that could be a very key identifier on the truck was the truck had a mountain fuel logo on it. Mm. And this was spotted by multiple individuals in the Heartland Apartments complex where Rosie lived. Mountain fuel records indicate that no employee visited the complex in the days prior to Rosie's death. And the truck is described as old. So the detectives have come forward and they said, we're looking for this truck It's described as an older model truck. We've checked the records of Mountain Fuel. They have no employees in the area in the days surrounding the murder. We think that maybe this vehicle had been sold at one point and somebody else is now driving this truck around. So back to our timeline, this will take us up to 2012. And we are getting this information from JensenPrivateInvestigations.com. They have a brief article on there that states that just days after an arrest was made in another murder case, unfortunately, this was the murder of Sierra Newbold. This arrest led to the Tapia family wondering if the man accused of murdering Sierra, if this could possibly be linked to their daughter's murder that took place 17 years prior the details of this are eerily similar so in both cases we have an abduction and then a murder when comparing rosie tapia's case to sierra newbold's case both girls were taken from their homes both were sexually assaulted and then drowned in a jordan canal it's strange but also super creepy when these cases sound It sounds like the same case, just a different victim's name. We talked about the surplus canal where Rosie Tapia was found. Well, unfortunately, this other girl who was similar in age, similar victim type to Rosie, unfortunately experienced a very similar situation. We have Sierra Newbold, where the perpetrator of that crime entered the home and exited the home through a sliding glass door. And then, of course, we have Rosie's case where the perpetrator came in through the window. It appears likely that the offender in Rosie's case exited the home the same way that they entered the home. I would like to get a little bit further confirmation on that because I think when we talk about a basement apartment, Captain, you can start to see the complexities when trying to remove a child or remove a victim in that manner. Right now, you've got to climb back up and, and get through that window with your victim. Some people have wondered if there might be two persons involved in Rosie's case. That would certainly make it easier to transport the victim. Yeah, easier to transport the victim, but also easier to maintain control of the victim. Well, the man that was arrested in the other case was Terry Black. He was arrested for multiple crimes, but one of them was the murder of Sierra Newbold. And the special investigator, Jason Jensen, is interviewed here and goes on to tell us a little bit about Black. 
saying that they looked into Black's criminal record, which spans throughout four states. Jensen Investigations was able to determine that, yes, in fact, this Terry Black was living in the state of Utah when Rosie was killed. They go on to say that he was a Salt Lake County resident at that time. And they want to be clear here saying, so you can't rule him in. You can't just automatically rule him in, but you also cannot rule him out in Rosie's case until we have some more information. Yeah, because one, we could test the DNA if we have a full sample size of that DNA. But also, this could be a serial killer with the same MO. Like we said, the crimes are identical with just different victim names. Sadly, in this same article here, Captain, we have Louine Tapia, Rosie's mother, who has been up front and center has been the face of this investigation since day one. And kudos to her for reminding everybody about this case. Because again, I didn't see a great deal of coverage locally when this first case broke. And really, it wasn't until these other organizations stepped in that you start to see all of these stories coming out. And it now goes on to become a national story. And today, 2023... We have a ton of information and a ton of stories about Rosie's case on the internet, thanks to the help of these other entities. Now, Louine Tapia in this article is quoted as saying, I'm just hoping I find out before I go. She's referencing finding out who killed her daughter. And she adds, I will be up in heaven with her, but I still won't know who took her. Well, now this is going to bring us to 2018. And I'm going to read some portions of this article that came out. This is when we get informed about this Barbie doll that was left years ago at little Rosie Tapia's gravesite. This is from 2018 People magazine. The headline, could a Barbie doll hold the clue to solving a 23-year-old cold case? They go on to say the mother of a murdered child discovered a Barbie doll at her gravesite 23 years ago and kept it in a glass case. It has been more than 20 years since six-year-old Rosie Tapia was kidnapped from her Salt Lake City home, assaulted, and killed. Her body was found in a canal off of the Jordan River several hours after her disappearance. Now, 23 years later, the Utah Cold Case Coalition is asking the public for any tips related to a Barbie doll which was found on top of the girl's grave shortly after she died in 1995. Quote, Rosie's mother went back to her grave regularly. She went back and found this doll there, which was a bit unusual, and kept it in a glass case this whole time. In September of 2017, we should point out here that this Utah cold case coalition is not a law enforcement entity. Okay. They are victim advocates. They assist victims, families in trying to further the investigations, keep the investigations in the spotlight, in the media and help raise money and resources to possibly finally solve some of these cases. So this is where you see From a media standpoint, anyway, this case take a 180-degree turn from where there's not a whole lot being reported on Rosie's case until you get Jensen investigations, until you get the Utah Cold Case Coalition involved, and they've really helped to 
climb to the mountaintops and keep shouting and shouting and shouting from the mountaintops about this case since then. Yeah, but we also all know how it works when there's a case. Take the Brian Schaefer case. Guy walks into a bar. He's seen on camera, never seen on camera, leaving the bar. Is he inside? Is he outside? There's like a little creepy factor that sparks our human interest. And so I think in this case, when you start going, well, there's this creepy man that returned her home, returned Rosie home the day that she was kidnapped. That that kind of sparks your interest. And then when you find out that there's this Barbie doll that might have some significance, and then you can start picturing in your mind's eye this creepy Barbie doll that's found at the gravesite. I think it really sparks our human interest to go, I want to know more about this case. So in September of 2017, the coalition approached the Salt Lake City Police Department with that Barbie doll, and they asked them to test it for DNA. But unfortunately, they say they basically did not get a response, or we can assume they at least did not get the response that they wanted. Since then, the coalition decided to move forward on testing the doll without assistance from law enforcement they go on to say that there will be two phases in the test the first phase extracts the dna that they're hoping to find and the second which is the more costly portion identifies the dna so this article comes out in 2018 so when they say last year they're referring to 2017 they say that the group was able to pay to get the DNA extracted from the doll, which did include male DNA. The group believes that the doll, known as a Pretty Hearts Barbie, could be a valuable clue in the case, and they're hoping someone will come forward with any information on who may have left it there. Quote, we thought we'd give the public a chance to say, I left that there, or hey, that's my doll. It went missing. Now I know where it is. So what they're saying here, Captain, is they've taken on this without the assistance of law enforcement. It's a two-phase process. In 2018, they're saying we've already paid for phase one. Phase two is the much more costly, much more expensive part of the investigation. Right. We're making an announcement publicly. This came out in People Magazine. It was on the internet. It It was in every newspaper that you can think of. And they're saying, we just want somebody to come forward. Let us know if you left the Barbie doll there. Because if somebody comes forward and we're like, we can prove that they had nothing to do with the case, well, we can move on and we don't have to waste resources and money on identifying who left it there. What's interesting to me, Captain, was the way that this Barbie doll is described. It was described as used. Okay, so I wanted to know what used meant, right? I'm assuming it's not in its packaging. Well, all my toys, (laughs) all my toys growing up were used. But take it a step further. I was told by somebody very close to the case that it's described as used because it was clear that it, it was not only not in its packaging. This was a Barbie doll that was likely sold the year prior to her murder and had obvious signs of wear and tear that it was played with. This could be looked at as a creep factor. It could be looked at simply as maybe a child did this, but there were some chew marks on the feet of the Barbie doll. Yeah. I think a lot of this to me just points 
to the idea that a child is there, their parents are showing their condolences, and then the child leaves the Barbie. And look, maybe the child doesn't remember leaving the Barbie. Maybe the parents don't remember the child leaving the Barbie. As said, they were able to determine, they were able to dis- to extract some male DNA or DNA that included male DNA from the doll. Now, what we do know is we sit here five years later after this article came out, five years after they asked someone to come forward, claim to have left the doll or know who left the doll. Yeah. And nobody's come forward. So that means one of three things. There's only three possible outcomes with that. A, the person that left the doll is completely innocent and just never heard the public cry for information. Right. B, the person is who left it wants to remain anonymous for any number of reasons. A lot of those reasons I would say would be suspicious. Or three. You mean C. Keep in mind this doll was left in 1995. People think you're a genius. Given the victim's age, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that... A friend or a loved one or even just somebody being sympathetic from afar from watching on TV or from the neighborhood, maybe another young person close in age to Rosie left the doll there. And now fast forward to 2018, all those years later, they were just so young they don't recall leaving the Barbie doll at the gravesite. Right. So to me, there's only three reasons why somebody wouldn't come forward. One of those, one of those is suspicious. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever thought about why your wireless bill is so damn expensive? It's all just radio waves, and how much can a radio wave really cost? Seems like Big Wireless got together and decided, $100 a month? I think they'll buy it. What choice do they have? Now, thanks to Mint Mobile, you do have a choice. For a limited time, all phone plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. 
So ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. I made the switch. I'm enjoying it. The secret is in the sauce over at Mint Mobile. 5G for free, no extra overhead, flexible plan options. Your unlocked device and current phone number are always welcome at Mint Mobile. I made the switch. I love it. You should do the same. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we are back. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, Cap. Sippy, sippy on your cup. Look, I I hate to poo-poo on the parade, but I'm not so concerned with this Barbie doll as I'm concerned with this man that brings her Rosie back to the apartment after she has an accident on the playground. Yes, air quotes accident on the playground got kicked in the back because there's the other side of that debate is that it never happened. The, the, the person brought Rosie back, but she was not hurt, wasn't crying, was not in need of assistance, and this person might have just been looking for some kind of information to, to later use. Well, because initially, everybody in the apartment complex goes, hey, we know who this guy is. He doesn't have any kids. He sits at the park. He plays guitar for the kids. He's kind of a strange weirdo. So if he's at the park multiple times, then probably pretty likely that he knows who Rosie is. It's probably pretty likely he knows where her apartment is. But it's very strange to be a guy playing guitar at the park for kids uh, and watching kids when you don't have any of your own. So here, this becomes a big problem for the investigation and from the Salt Lake City Police Department's investigation from that side. Early on in the investigation, they said that they had identified this man. And for clarity purposes, we're going to call this man the Good Samaritan, right? The guy, that's what he's been referred to in multiple stories. The guy that brought Rosie home to her apartment that night said that she was hurt on the playground. They say that they identified him as a man who had a son 
that was a divorcee, so he had his son part-time. Right. And he played guitar at the playground, and often his son was there with him. So you have, and you heard it in our sound clip leading into today's storytelling of the case, that people were suspicious of people in the park or people at the playground. Why would a man be sitting there by himself? Why would he be there without a child? Old flicky flicky pedo. People were suspicious of that, and rightfully so. Well, police say we moved on from the Good Samaritan because we identified him as a man who I believe he was a truck driver or worked out of town for a portion of his schedule. He's a divorcee with his with his son, has his son part time, lives in the apartment complex and was known to play the guitar at the playground. By the way, based off of his work records, they show that he was out of town when Rosie was abducted and killed. The problem with that then becomes guitar man and the good Samaritan cannot be the same person. We, again, we don't have the details. Did he leave on a trucking route at midnight? Right. And so then we know that from, from the time period that she was abducted, that he wouldn't have been around, but he could have been able to bring her back to the apartment earlier that day. I, like you said, I think it's it's very unclear if this good Samaritan and this this uh, divorcee truck driver, if they're the same person. Right. Is Guitar Man and the Good Samaritan the same person? There have been people that have come forward and said, no, we know who the guitar guy is, just like the police says, and we are saying that's not the same person. So then in retrospect, they go back and they look, and unfortunately, even though they said they were able to move on from the Good Samaritan, very much like a case that we very recently reviewed, there's no documents backing any of that up. They can't say who spoke to this man. There's no documents backing it up, showing that that they positively identified the Good Samaritan man. So many are pointing out a problem with that having moved on from the Good Samaritan too quickly, that maybe maybe they misidentified him and that those two individuals are not one and the same. But what we do have is Rosie's sister answered the door and talked to this man. The problem is he's wearing a hat. He's wearing glasses. He's almost like incognito. Mm-hmm. And then when they release a sketch of this individual, he looks like an alien human from men in black right right well difficult to say he he could be a a, an alien in disguise or he could be the man in black right it's a it's a men in black type situation the guy the description is basically take a face and put big sunglasses (laughs) and a hat on it and that's your your sketch that you get yeah in the face before we move on too far from the barbie doll though captain i do want to point out that the um, you're a little too obsessed with dolls of all the things that they paid for again nobody ever came forward taking credit for leaving the barbie doll we should point out a couple of things here that the coalition the cold case coalition has pointed out saying that they have received numerous calls about barbie dolls left at grave sites for other murdered girls including some in other states And they go on to say that they don't know if there is any possible link between any of the cases, but they do say the timeframes we've been contacted on are fairly close together, although in different states. 
Could it be the same person? I don't know. Could it be a certain type of predator? I don't know. Could it also be totally innocent? Possibly. Well, no. And think about uh, True Detective. The one season there were these handmade woven uh, dolls that were given to these victims. So when they go to investigate these murder crimes and they go look through uh, the rooms of the victims, they find these handmade dolls. To me, that that would be a link. But a, a Barbie doll is such a common item. A lot of these people that are showing respect to these victims by leaving flowers or just visiting the gravesite, if they have a child with them, I could totally see a child going well i'm going to donate my doll and i could also see that being a a a situation with rosie's case where the parent might not have even known that their daughter did that and look i have pretty good memories of of things i've done and you'd think that this would also be a memory that would stick out to you going to go visit a, a grave when you're a little kid But I have friends of mine that they can't remember shit from when they're a kid. In 2019, the Utah Cold Case Coalition released a sketch of a possible suspect in Rosie Tapia's murder. According to a press release, the sketch is based on a neighbor's recollection. The neighbor lived in the same apartment complex where the six-year-old lived when she was abducted and murdered. The neighbor claims that he was up early, saw a teenager coming from the same direction as the canal where she was later found. At first, as the captain pointed out yesterday, this neighbor thought that the teen was wearing pants of two different colors, but then realized the pants were wet. This is interesting. This is the lead in the sketch that we talked about yesterday. This is the one that comes out, but it doesn't come out until 2019. Now, some of these reports state that this neighbor, because you're sitting here going, well, why would this individual wait so long to tell anybody about this? This neighbor person, I don't know if it's a she or he, but they claim that they did give this information to the Salt Lake City Police Department back in 1995, but there was little to no follow-up on it at all. The witness described this teenager as a 16 to 17 year old boy who is Hispanic with a slight build and a narrow face with high cheekbones. He says that he was seen wearing denim jeans, a white shirt, and a medium length gold chain. Baller. Now, what's interesting is that police get this sketch and they hold on to it for. A period of time. I believe it was like two months. The reason why this sketch is so important. I've looked at this in comparison to the Good Samaritan sketch. The man that returned Rosie. Right. There's not. The Good Samaritan sketch is not descriptive enough really to compare it to anything. I've heard and read people say that the sketches look like they could be the same person. Frankly, I mean, I don't think it's you can compare anything to the Good Samaritan sketch. No, because he looks like an undercover alien. But no, I think this is actually the the biggest and best lead that we have. And it, and it sucks that it took so long to, one, compile this sketch and then to release the sketch. Because, again, I'm going to go back to the initial investigation. This becomes very difficult for law enforcement because you have basically a small town in this apartment complex. 
So you would see a lot of individuals. So to jog your memory and go, oh, yeah, there was a, a teenage boy that would walk around the complex. To jog your men memory uh, 10, 15 years later to try to identify somebody that you might have only seen a few times, that if this sketch was released two weeks after the murders, I think you'd have a lot of people coming forward and saying, well, that looks like Ricky or that looks like Steve or that looks like whoever. It's so difficult, and we've talked about this before. We've talked to plenty of detectives that say time is everything. We bring it up all the time. Time is the killer. Time is the killer of evidence. Time is the killer of solving these cases. And the detectives would tell you if early on in the investigation, had we just spoke to this person, I think the outcome would have been different. Had we just found this piece of the puzzle early in the investigation instead of all these years later, I think that the outcome would be different. I agree with you here, Captain. I think that this is that piece of the puzzle. This is that person that had they just had this information, and maybe they did. Again, this person is saying that I gave this information. We don't know. It's difficult to say. We can only base it off of the reports we are seeing. But had they had this information back in 1995, maybe we're not sitting here talking about an unsolved homicide. And the reason why I state that is because this 2019 sketch of wet pants, man, may be the most and best tip that they've got all along. And this is going to be the best way of crowdsourcing this case. So there's some backstory that comes along with this composite sketch. And that is that when the composite sketch was released by the police, this man who is reported, his name is Dan, contacts the police department and says, that sketch looks similar to a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine back in 1995, and he's still somebody that I stay in touch with to this day. Right. Now we're no longer close, but we were back in 95. And he says what's even more strange about the sketch is that dun, dun, dun. prior to it being released, his friend had called him and said, hey, I heard that they're putting together a sketch of somebody that they think is a suspect in the Rosie Tapia case. And this Dan individual says, yes, that's what I've heard as well. And the friend of Dan says to Dan, wouldn't it be funny if the sketch looks like one of us, well, I'm sure they probably shared a laugh and it seems like a dumb statement. I don't know why any of that would be funny when we're talking about the murder of a six year old, but right. Dan calls police and says, look, my friend called me before the sketch came out and said, wouldn't it be funny if it looks like one of us? Now the sketch comes out. I think it looks like my friend, right? The one that thought it would be so hilarious. Well, guess, guess, I'm guessing he didn't find it to be too funny when it does come out and it looks like him. There is some reports out there that uh, this individual states that I've seen the sketch. It does not look like me in that person's opinion. This person, to their credit, did agree to a DNA swab. And so did the Dan individual agree to a DNA swab. I know that the unnamed individual the friend that they did in fact collect his DNA. Well, one of the things that we have, or one of the things that I've seen reported is that, that Rosie at least put up some kind of struggle. And so they believe that they could get some DNA from underneath her fingernails. I've referenced once or twice that we spoke to somebody very close to the case. 
And I was not aware at the time when speaking to this individual that this unnamed person, the friend of Dan, yeah, had Mr. a wet gr- pants. What's that? The guy that could be Mr. Wet Pants. Possibly could be Mr. Wet Pants. I had, did not know that this friend of Dan had agreed to a DNA swap. Yeah, I didn't see that reported, but this is one of those weird scenarios where you were actually able to talk to an individual that's really close to this case. So some of the stuff that you're putting out in this episode, I'm hearing for the first time as well. So what happened is this, uh, and I'm going to go through our interaction together. Because I did not know this in advance, my reaction to him telling me this information was, I said, look, I've reviewed, I'm no detective, but I've reviewed a lot of homicide cases here in the garage with the captain. And it's my experience that guilty people don't so willingly offer up their DNA. And he said to me, that's exactly right, Nick. But keep in mind, Mm -hmm. when he offered up his DNA, there was a big question mark out there whether DNA existed as evidence in this case at all. Right. In fact, there was police on record more than one occasion stating that they did not have DNA. So I said to him, either that's some great strategy by the police to not release that they have DNA, or there's something weird with the DNA evidence. Yeah, well, like we said, uh, one of the destroyers of evidence is time, but also water. I think that's why you see some of these cases, even if they're these brutal murders, but if the victim is found in water, it, it becomes way more difficult for law enforcement to put together the pieces of the puzzle to solve the case. Now let's stay in the year of 2019 here as we continue on our timeline, because this directly impacts what we were just talking about in 2019 new details about the case were released by the salt Lake city police department, but this was done in an episode by investigation discovery network, the Paula Zahn on the case. Uh, Palazan. Palazan. On the case with Palazan. And the episode about Rosie Tapia's murder was titled She's Gone. For the first time in Rosie's case, the case had gone national on, on a big national scale here, beyond even what the national scale that it hit in 2018. Again, I want to point out all the good work that the Jensen investigations have done and the cold case coalition because they're the entities that made this a national story when this case did not get a whole lot of local media coverage they changed that 180 degrees once they stepped in so and they've worked directly with the tapia family on this case all along don't dismiss the power of palazan well don't dismiss the power of these victim advocacy programs these um nonprofit organizations that exist. What was shocking to Rosie's mother when she watched the Paula Zahn case and the Tapia family was participating in the making of that episode. But when she watched it, she, for the very first time says that she learned that they did have DNA in her daughter's case says, quote, I did not know that they had DNA from her fingernails I asked them a long time ago if they had DNA from her fingernails, and they told me they didn't have any, end quote. Now, you'd think you're being cooperative with this production company. 
you would think that, well, first of all, you'd think, one, we're going to disclose all the information to you before we release it to the public, but also maybe that we're going to let you watch watch it before it comes out, let you watch the documentary early before the information comes out to the public. The If you're going to play the numbers here, the numbers would tell you, the statistics would tell you that the overwhelming majority of the time, this kind of offender is known to the family, knows the family, or knows the victim. Right. My suspicion here is if, in fact, they had good DNA evidence, and that's what I think we need to hone in on here in a second, if, in fact, they had good DNA evidence, if there's a chance that they thought that the perpetrator may be known to the family, they may have withheld this information from the family as well as part of their investigation. Right, which which does make some sense. According to police statements on the Palazon episode, Salt Lake City Police said that they have more than 60 samples from different persons in this case. Now, it's also been reported that they could not enter or compare the DNA that they found in Rosie's case to DNA on CODIS, that it did not meet the criteria for being able to upload it or compare it to the CODA database. Yeah, most likely meaning it doesn't have enough markers. Correct. Which the point I was going to make that I had a little brain fart earlier. I heard it. It smells. We have an eyewitness that is saying that this Mr. Wet Pants is a late teenager. This is a horrific crime. This is the type of crime that, even if this is his first crime, this is probably a murderer that's going to continue on the path of being a horrific murderer. So you would think at some point he would either get caught for this or, like you said, get caught in a home and then get charged with breaking and entering. But it all depends on where he was arrested. Did they collect DNA? And like you said, if there's not enough markers, then you can't even compare that DNA. But it wouldn't surprise me if this individual was in prison or has been in prison for another crime or attempting another crime like this. So here's what I can tell you. Here's what I've learned very recently. Tell it to us, Colonel. The DNA stuff, let's set that aside for a minute. So we know that the DNA was collected from the friend of Dan. Dan not only tells police, this guy, my old friend, resembles the sketch that you're now putting out, but he also said this weird statement to me a month or so before the sketch came out. Wouldn't it be funny if it looked like one of us? Now we have this situation where we learn a little bit about this friend from Dan. Now, Dan is very important and could be key to this investigation for a couple of reasons. One, he's saying that my friend, Dan was young, of course, roughly 17, 18-ish, let's say, around the time of Rosie's murder. His friend would have been 16 at the time. So right. that fits with the sketch of Wet Pants Man, who he also, Dan is saying this man looks like. Dan, at one time, dated Amelia. The older daughter, the 18-year-old daughter that was watching the kids that night. And as the captain had talked about on our last episode. The ex-boyfriend. Dan was an ex-boyfriend. He was somebody who had gone into 
the Tapia apartment on more than one occasion to meet with his girlfriend, Amelia. And when he did, he would do that via that same window that the offender came in and abducted Rosie Tapia. But it even gets more deep. Gets more deep because he says his friend was aware that he would use this window to climb in and out of the Tapia home. Right. This guy has intimate knowledge of the crime scene, intimate knowledge of the family. He looks like the sketch, and it's been pointed out to me by the person close to the investigation that this individual may have only given his DNA swab willingly, voluntarily, because he may have been led to believe or was under the assumption at the time that they didn't have DNA evidence in Rosie Tapia's case. Right. Or look, maybe he's also aware that they do have DNA, but it's just partial. And so maybe he is one of these narcissists that's like, hey, well, try your luck with this partial DNA. Not every criminal is so smart either. Most of the time, it's the opposite. And maybe he just felt pressured enough that he submitted the DNA just to get them off of his back right? and cross his fingers and hope that he would get lucky. What's difficult though, is now we sit here a couple years later and where it sits, where the case sits is there is a $100,000 reward in the Rosie Tapia case. That money is not meant for a witness to come forward after all of these years who saw something and just forgot it and didn't and decided not to come forward. When you put together a, a substantial reward like that, That tells me that the people putting together the reward believe that there are other people that are aware of what this person did. This money is a nudge. This money is encouragement to turn on that individual that you may have been protecting out of fear for all of these years. Well, no, and I would bet money if this douchebag is saying things to his friend Dan Oh, would it be funny if we looked like the sketch? And Dan is obviously close to the victim in in the sense that he dated the older sibling. So he knows the family. So if he's making weird statements to somebody that knows the family, knows probably a little bit about the investigation, probably knows a little bit about the crime, what other weird comments is, has he made to other individuals? Maybe at a bar when he gets drunk. Maybe at a party. What other weird statements has he made to other people that weren't connected to the family and weren't connected to the crime? So as far as the DNA goes, what we've been told, where the kiss case sits now, is the DNA collected from the victim is being sent off for genealogy detection work that the DNA collected from the Barbie doll is being sent off by the private entity for genealogy detection work. Those statements came out a while ago. So if there's been any movement or advancement, and and guess what? I have personal experience and can tell you those are not fast investigations. The genealogy stuff can take six weeks, six months, 18 months, two years, It can be a long and difficult process, and you're not always guaranteed results. So we don't know exactly where that stands other than we've been told it's been sent off in both cases by two different entities. Yeah, or sometimes they get results back that then take more legwork 
to connect the dots. The thing is with the DNA that's collected from the victim, and we've seen this in plenty of other cases too, Captain, you can usually use those if it does not have enough markers to fit the criteria for CODIS. It likely has enough markers that you can rule some people out from those 60 that you've collected and you can keep some people in, but you can't conclusively link it to one individual. Now, we talked about early on how there were statements given by police that, yes, the FBI is working to put together a profile on the offender, but then they've never made that profile, if it exists, public. So in those cases, when able, and I think we can here, Captain, I like to do what some people think is very arrogant of me, but guess what? You go get your own show and you can do what you want on your show. This is our show, so I got 50% of the say. Wow. I like to put Big together headed, our own big-headed prick. I like to put together our own profile here for you in the garage and I'm going to use some expert information to piece that together. I'll start it off with the lesser of the experts. That would be yours truly, the colonel. Now, it's been my experience in the cases that we've reviewed that are similar to Rosie's case that we are usually talking about a younger offender and it's not terribly uncommon. In fact, the numbers would suggest that it is more common that the offender in this type of case has a similar or the same ethnic background as the victim. So what I'm saying here is when you can see and review this case on a map, the first thing that jumps off the page is the person that abducted, killed, and placed the body and left the body in that canal did not need any means of transportation other than their own two legs to commit this crime. Sometimes that's an indicator that your offender is either too young to drive or of a younger age and does not possess a vehicle of their own. Now, while we don't have the FBI profile to talk about, we do have a clinical psychologist, Steve Kramer, who evaluates sex offenders for the Utah State Prison System. And back in 1995, he gave the following information, saying that the killer is a, quote, very impulsive person, one who does the first thing that comes into his head without thinking of the consequences. Right. The Statement goes on to say most pedophiles are smooth operators who control their environment to gain access to children. He may marry a single mother to get at her kids or befriend children at a playground. Rosie's killer is different from this. He can't even initiate a conversation. He's probably a withdrawn loner type of person. This was a real cowardly act. Should I get my profile now? I spent hours and hours on my profile. Well, I would like to continue along with some information from Kenneth Lanning's book. And we know that Kenneth Lanning was involved. He was the special agent from the FBI that was involved early on in this investigation. And I think this gives us a possibly more complete profile picture of our offender. From page 84 of his book, Love, Bombs, and Molesters, he states that most child molesters do not abduct their victims, and most offenders who do abduct their victims do not kill them. Statistics bear this out. Then if you fast forward to page 114, Kenneth Lanning learned from BSU research that the primary but not the only reason some child molesters use violence and abduction to control their victims was that they lacked the interpersonal skills to do otherwise. 
To put it rather simply here, Captain. Please do. What Lanning is stating after his years of expertise and his years in in working on these types of crimes is that the persons that abduct and kill typically are doing this because they do not groom. They do not have the ability to groom and victimize the victim over a period of time. They're somebody that lacks those skills. What's interesting is cross-referencing that with what Steve Kramer, the clinical psychologist for Utah State Prison System back in 95, said that this killer is a very impulsive person. He does the first thing that comes into his head without thinking of the consequences. And to me, this all goes in line with our composite sketch of Wet Pants Man, who was described as 16 to 17, and goes along with the experiences that we've seen when reviewing these cases here on True Crime Garage, that this type of case fits the profile of a younger offender, of a local offender, likely lived in the complex or very near the complex, and likely did not possess the ability to drive a vehicle legally or have an actual vehicle. We're not just making this stuff up. Look at the close proximity from where the victim was found to where she was abducted back in 1995. Yeah, and the profile I worked on for hours, if not days, was this individual is a giant piece of shit. And I'm convinced. I, there's just a gut feeling of mine that, that this horrible individual has made weird comments about this case, such as, I might look like the sketch. Wouldn't that be funny? Those are weird comments. So if you have heard somebody that has made weird comments about this case, turn their name into law enforcement and let them do the due diligence to rule them in or out. Unless this individual was picked up for a burglary or something else shortly after 95. I think what we're probably dealing with here, like you said, captain, somebody knows something that's 100% because a person that carries out this level of violence, a person that carries out this level of victimization is incapable of controlling themselves. They will have and victimize in the future, likely in domestic situations where they will add violence, bring violence into their home against their spouse, their children, other loved ones. So somebody out there very likely knows something. Remember, there is a reward for up to $100,000 in Rosie Tapia's case. Someone somewhere has information that can help solve this homicide. No fact is insignificant. No detail is too small. If you have any information, please call 385-258-3313. That number is answered by representatives of the family and not law enforcement. Or you can email whokilledrosie at gmail.com. Again, this is monitored by family representatives. want to thank you guys so much for joining us here in the garage and this would be a great example of a case that could be shared on social media to spread the word get people talking and maybe we could make a difference colonel do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners we do captain and very fittingly so our recommended reading for this week is lou and john benet a legendary lawman's quest to solve a child beauty queen's murder 
by John Wesley Anderson. John Wesley Anderson himself is a former homicide detective turned author after retiring from a 30-year law enforcement career, and he was good friends with Lou Smith. And this book is about Lou Smith's investigation into the still, surprisingly so, still unsolved homicide of little John Benet Ramsey. Make sure you check out Lou and John Benet by John Wesley Anderson. You can find that recommendation and many more on our recommended page on our website, truecrimegarage.com. And if you want to join us live, make sure you get a ticket at truecrimegarage.com. Click on the live events link, and that's how you can get a ticket. Hope to see you there. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.